This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Now tonight's going to be a little different. I know we said we were going to come back and we were planning to come back into 1 Peter after the Q&A Bible study last week. But um, a recent question that uh, came my way, just to put it mildly, a recent question that came my way sort of opened this up and I thought it's good to nail this down with as many of us here as will be here tonight and maybe other people can catch it on the rebound, listen to the podcast. What we're going to teach on tonight is the structure of the church, the structure or the organization of the church as a corporate body, so to speak. I don't mean like a corporation like FedEx or something like that. I don't mean that. I mean as a, as a physical body of believers on the earth. We're going to teach on that. So it's a topical study. We're going to be in at least three different books tonight. We're going to start with Ephesians. We're going to move over into 1 Corinthians, and we're going to pull a little bit out of James because... It's important to understand how God, how God established the church on earth, why it is the way that it is, and what he actually has to say about it as far as um, not so much what it does as how it does it. Does that make sense? So there's a little bit in there, but there's, there's very little, there's not a whole lot of detail about uh, what a church, service, a church service or an assembly of believers should be like. And we're going to talk a little bit about leadership. It's going to be in two parts, but I'm going to do my dead level best. Lord, help me. We're going to try to cover both parts tonight. We're just going to hit this thing, see if we can bring everyone to a common understanding, because that's unity, which we are commanded to and admonished to as, as a body of believers. We're going to hit this thing, cover it, Call it done, and then next week we'll be right back in First Peter because there's so little left in First Peter. We've got one paragraph left in, in chapter 4, and then we've got chapter 5, which is short. And chapter 5, usually the last chapters of the various letters have all the concluding salutations. You know, God bless so-and-so, salute the house of uh, Onesiphorus or whatever his name is and his family who have done great things for the Lord. Praise God, hallelujah, amen. And, you know, and so forth. So let's go ahead and begin. We've already prayed. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians. This is Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus called Ephesians, chapter 4, Ephesians, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, this is Paul writing, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I'm going to rabbit trail on, 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 a, on a couple of these to, it's not even really rabbit trailing, but it's more of an introduction to sort of bolster the main point that we're going to get to here, okay? He's calling for unity, unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ. It was never God's will in the original design for the church to be exploded into these all these fragments of different denominations of wildly different practices, but mainly beliefs, so much more so than practices, differing beliefs. And while some of the core doctrines remain uni uh, remain uniform across 
virtually all of the denominations, because when you go outside of the core doctrines, that's when you get into the realms of cults, okay? So your Mormons and your Jehovah's Witnesses and your Church of God the Mother and, and things like that, they are not part of the body of Christ in any way, shape, or form. They have taken the word, they have twisted it, they have exploited it, they've engineered entirely different belief systems and have really led many, many people astray. But as far as your Baptists versus Pentecostals versus these guys say they're non-denominational versus Episcopalians versus Presbyterians versus your, well, goodness, just look at the Baptist label. How many are under that umbrella? Your Northern, Southern, Primitive, Missionary. Those are just the first four that come to mind, you know. So that was never part of the original design. Now, it came about because of corruptions within the, within the, within some of the more old world churches that existed centuries ago and still exist to this day. But here in the Word, which is the basis of all of our belief, amen? Yes. It's the Word. That's what we stand on. We don't stand on feelings or on Brother Billy Bob's commentary or anybody else's commentary for that matter. We stand on the Word, and that keeps us out of so much trouble where doctrine is concerned. It's just a matter of rightly understanding it and sharing it, learning it, teaching it, etc., so he's, here's the call to unity, <clears throat> unity of the Spirit, capital S, that's the Holy Ghost, in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So what's all this saying? The church, capital C, right, refers to the body of Christ on earth as a corporate entity that transcends all of our buildings and our denominational labels and all of that. As many as are truly born again by the Spirit of God, they are the church. You and I are the church. Uh, somebody else in a church five states away or two continents away if they are a true, devout believer in Jesus Christ and, and are indeed his disciple, then they are the church as well. Does that make sense? Okay. So some of this is going to be kind of rudimentary and entry level, but we're going somewhere more pointed with this, but it's going to take the high-level stuff before we get down to the low-level stuff, and I'll try not to wear everybody up. So there's that, and that's what he's talking about. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one body. There's one spirit. We're all supposed to be one in this thing. Verse 7, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So now it's starting to get a bit more individual. Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, speaking of Jesus, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. But what do you mean by that? Well, we're going to read about the spiritual gifts when we, when we, teach, out of the, when we teach the book of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians. So, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, but now that he ascended, verse 9, what is it but he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And then right here, verse 11, this is where sort of the, the, the tires are going to, the spinning wheels on this thing are going to hit the road. And we're going to get some traction. We're going to move forward. Verse 11. And he, who? Jesus. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, 
till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him, Jesus, in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working of the measure of every part, making increase, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying unto the edifying of itself in love. Sorry, we got really verbose there at the end, but you can see where he's talking about. He's describing the church on the earth, the body of Christ, as being a as being an entity made up of many, many individuals, all of us parts of the greater whole. He's describing the body of Christ on earth as being an entity made up of multiple parts, multiple individuals. None of us is an independent wildcat Christian. And when a Christian goes wildcat, which is to say they cut themselves off from the assembly and they put themselves out there on their own, it's not to say they go out on their own to start another church. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's like, whatever, I'm going to do this by myself. Then what happens is, well, they're no longer really abiding in the vine. They're no longer really abiding in Christ. And over time, either quickly or slowly, they wither and they die. Now, if it's a case of, someone trying to find a church that they can be a part of, well, that's different because your heart is still oriented towards God. You're, you're oriented towards being a part of the community that makes up the body of Christ in a local assembly. Amen? What's the local assembly? Well, I'm looking at a few of us here tonight. That's us. And so a Christian ought to want to be part of that. And if he doesn't want to be part of that, then that's indicative that there's a heart problem at work within them. And maybe it's one that's their fault. Maybe it's the fault of someone else. Maybe they got burned by the last two churches they were in. I mean, bad, because that happens all the time and in lots of different ways. And so it can really, and not disillusion, but really delusion and harden and embitter the believer so that they just put themselves out there and they never trust anybody again. We don't ever want to find ourselves in that place. Why are we bringing this up? Verse 11, he says, and he gave some apostles and some. Now look at the language here and the punctuation. It didn't say he gave some apostles and he gave some prophets. Like he's just throwing it out there. He gave some, he gave some money and he gave some lumber and he gave some apostles. And he gave, you know what I'm saying? He's not saying it like that. He gave some, comma, apostles. In other words, he gave to some apostles and he gave to some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. We're talking about leadership and offices within the church. Leadership and offices within the church. So what does Jesus give according to this narrative? He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, names five different ordained offices of ministerial work and appointment. So he mentions these five different offices, and it's, it's, worth say, it's worth noticing that there's a couple that he doesn't mention. He doesn't mention preacher, and he doesn't mention priest. And there's a reason for that, because preaching is done by most of these five offices that are listed here. Apostles preached and preach. 
Prophets uh, often preach in the midst of their prophesying. Evangelists preach. Pastors preach. And so it's not necessarily something that's reserved for an exclusive set outside of these five. He doesn't mention priests because every single born-again believer in the body of Christ is a priest and a king unto God. We taught that a couple of books ago, didn't we? So that sort of clarifies that. So, well, why does he give these? And what are these exactly? Because we read about them, but what exactly are they? So prophets, let's take it from the top. He mentions apostles first. Well, what's an apostle? Now, some groups teach that all believers are apostles. That couldn't be the further, couldn't be further from the truth. An apostle is someone who is sent. Now, that's the, that's the plainest definition, okay? But in the Christian context, which is the only context that matters where it comes to this word, an apostle is someone who has had an extraordinary and direct encounter with Almighty God, like the 12 apostles in the Gospels. They walked with Jesus. And the apostle Paul, who encountered Jesus, a risen and glorified Jesus shining out from heaven on his way to Damascus. Thus, Paul is counted as an apostle. So, well, are there even any apostles existing to this day? Believe it or not, yes, there are. But I will say that they are very rare. I would say they are exceedingly rare because God can manifest himself in a miraculous fashion to anybody. And I don't mean something like, well, I saw Jesus in a tortilla. That's not going to make you an apostle. You know what I mean? Or I saw I had a vision of Mary in a bush or something like that, and she was weeping. That was Mary's always weeping in these, in these things, you know. <laughs> and if you come from a Catholic background, especially a, a, a Hispanic Catholic background, then you're probably a bit more familiar with these sorts of things. But an apostle is someone who's had that extraordinary direct encounter with God and is usually in conjunction with that received a very specific commission or mission to fulfill. Does that sound about right? All right. Prophets. What are prophets? Prophets is anyone who prophesies is in that moment a prophet. And that can happen with anyone. And in times in, in let's say in, how do we put this in Old Testament language, you know, in, in days of old, all right, or in, in, in the Old Testament, prophets were ministers of the will of God. They were ministers of God and they spent their whole ministries being prophets. And that's pretty much all they were. Sometimes you had a prophet that was also a priest under the, uh, the order of Aaron or Levi, rather, because um, they, they were born into, the, into that tribe of Levi. And, and so sometimes they could be both. But for the most part, a prophet was a prophet was a prophet. Some of them were full-time. Some of them were avocational. But a prophet was someone upon whom the Spirit of the Lord would move and give him a message. God would speak to the prophet for the prophet to then speak to the people, thus saith the Lord. The Old Testament is filled with that. Now, it's not to say that it's done away with in the New Testament, but you see a lot less of it in this New Testament age that we're in because the structure of things is different in the New Testament. The church exists now, did not exist back then. It was a little bit different. Evangelists. What's an evangelist? An evangelist is simply someone who reaches the lost. And we hear the word evangelist, and usually the first thing that pops into mind is uh, uh, someone like Billy Graham or 
or some TV evangelist, a televangelist, someone who stands up before crowds of people and weeps and yells and shouts and, you know, and throws chairs accidentally like Billy Sunday did that one revival. You know, we think of someone who comes into town and preaches a revival. Uh, but while there's some overlap there, an evangelist is simply someone who reaches the unreached where Christ is concerned. Does that make sense? And so... Lots of people have done the work of an evangelist. It's reaching out to the lost. Now, we'll get back to that more later. Pastors? Well, what are pastors? Well, that's kind of self-explanatory. But the word itself has a literal translation meaning shepherd. Did you know that? It comes from Latin. It comes from Latin pastere, or actually the original Latin is spelled the same way as in the English, but it comes from um, a similar spelling, but it means a shepherd. And... What a pastor effectively is, is someone who is in charge of a local congregation. I hate to use that phrase, in charge of, because it, it puts a little bit different slant on it. But there's got to be some leadership somewhere, or it's just a, a, a vague assembly of believers with no clear leadership, no vision, no mission, and we're just all kind of looking at each other going, hey, brother, what's going on? Oh, not much. See the ball game last week? You know, and there's... There's no vision, and then what happens in a church where there's no vision? The Bible says where there is no vision, the people perish. The people perish. And so teachers is the last thing that he mentioned. We all know what a teacher is. And in the context of this, it's people whose, whose primary mission is to teach. Because preaching and teaching are two different dynamics a lot of times. You can have impassioned teaching, but preaching is something altogether different than teaching. Preaching is the inspired and em emphatic delivery of the word to a group of believers that are there to hear and to receive. And, and, and it all works together with the Spirit of God to bring about the will of God in people's lives and to realize that will in their lives. So this is what the Bible says that he has given. And then he tells us why, because that's the next question, right? Well, he's give us, he gave us these. Well, why? Well, not for the abuse and the exploitation of the Lord's flock. Let me just cover that. That's not what these ministers are given for. They are not sent to exploit and wear out the saints of God. Give till it hurts and all of that sort of thing. Okay. Now, giving is part of the Christian life. We understand that. But we really don't beat that drum a whole lot because people get antsy and I understand why. You've probably, probably every one of you in some point in your life has heard some money preacher that couldn't preach anything except give, 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 need to give, give, and God will give back. And while all of that is true, that becomes a very wearisome message, and it communicates a message that the preacher is nothing but a greedy money monger. And so ministers are not sent to do that. They're not sent to exploit and to abuse, and they are not sent for the glory of their own leadership or of their own office. And over in 3 John, you don't have to, you don't have to turn to it, just because it's just one little verse I'm going to read from it and share it with you. Uh, there was a guy that was like that, that uh, John wrote in his third general epistle by the name of Diotrephes. John said, John the apostle said, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. These are ministers that love the admiration and the respect and to be called their, their many much titles of exaltation. <laughs> this is the right reverend bishop deacon father, um, Billy Joe Bob, 
and hear ye what he hath to say, or you're going to die and go to hell. You know, because a lot of times that type of attitude is reinforced through fear and through bullying of people with the word to control them by fear and threats of hell. That is not what ministers are sent for. It's not what we're sent for. He says right here in verse 12, what ministers are sent for. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are sent for the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, and the edifying of the body of Christ. That's why God sends ministers into the church. It's for those things. So I'll read them again. The perfecting of the saints. What's that mean? The completing of the saints. He gives ministers so that we, as the saints of Almighty God, you and I and all of us, can be perfected and made better and made better and made better. I'm not talking about working towards an ultimate salvation. That's salvation by works. I'm talking about God being manifested more, Christ being manifested more and more in us. Because think about it. Think, about, think back to the day you first believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself. What did you know about God? Much or little? Most of us, little to nothing. You know, unless we were raised in the church, and then we had a bunch of head knowledge, but our life wasn't really, you know, wasn't necessarily lined up with that. You know, we had a heart problem, meaning we weren't, we weren't saved yet. Okay? And so when we first come into the faith, that's entry level. We're babes in Christ. This is something we've talked about at different times, taught, preached on, and so forth. And so... What ministers sent into the church help us to do is grow up out of that babe in Christ stage into greater and greater degrees of maturity in our Christian life. Does that make sense? Because who wants to stay entry level? We've got a few working folks in this room. I know a few folks that are punching clocks and see some sleepy eyes because you worked all day and it probably wasn't the joy of a job to do to begin with and, and maybe it was particularly difficult. We don't really know. Usually the devil makes things hardest on days when he knows you're going to be going to church that night because he's trying to goof you up, but you made it here and so here we are. He sends them for the perfecting of the saints to make us better. Now I'm not exempt from that. I'm one of you as well. I am likewise a saint as you are. I'm not exalted and up on high or anything like that. There is, uh, there is something of a hierarchy within a church because you have to have organization or it just dissolves into chaos. Read 1 Corinthians to get a good example of that. Those guys were a hot mess and it took Paul writing two letters to them. One to get them straightened out and the other to iron out, I think, a few uh, more minor details by comparison. I have men of God appointed over me to whom I answer. I've got three overseers, a pastor, a general board. There are men of God that know way more than me and are way better at the ministry than me, if you, get, if, you, if you gauge that sort of thing. It's not really about that. I have men of God that watch for my soul as well. So it's not like I'm sitting on top of some heap. We all answer to God. And he has sent ministers to make us better. It takes Jesus to save us. That's what happened. And so now we're in the school of virtue. Welcome to the body of Christ. Welcome to the church. God took you out of sin and he made you into something clean. He made you into a whole new creature. And now he's going to make you better than you were last year. He's going to make you a better person than you were last month. He's going to make you a better person than you were this morning. He's always 
faithfully working on us and in us and through us when we are willing to be used for the work of the ministry. Sends them for the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Is that kind of self-explanatory? That word edifying is a key word. Edifying. What does it mean to edify someone? To build them up. To build them up and make them stronger. So if church was just all about bringing everybody under one roof and then terrifying them with get right or get lost, then there's nothing edifying about that. There's nothing edifying about that at all. But when, as you know, because you've been in Bible studies, you've been in many services, and you've heard many messages preached, you, there's always something there. Sometimes it perfects you. It might be a little bit painful when it does, but not always. A lot of times it's inspiring the way that it's done. And, and other things that get shared in the ministry of the Word that encourage and strengthen. Plus, every one of us here under the same roof, we build one another up anyway. And that's always a good thing. It's never a bad thing. For the edifying of the body of Christ. He sent us, he sent ministers into the church to edify it, to make it stronger, better. What else do you add to that? Part two assemblies. Part one was leadership and offices. And the reason that we bring that up is because there are some groups that. They follow the Congregationalist model, okay? The Congregationalist model really isn't scriptural in terms of its origin. The very beginnings of the church, there was clear leadership within the church, and it didn't just die with the apostles. There's always remained leadership with the church. Paul the Apostle taught and mentored Timothy, and he was the bishop of the church at Ephesus. And effectively, he was the pastor of the church at Ephesus, to whom this letter was written. Assemblies. Because the, the church is a spiritual body on the earth, the body of Christ on earth. The church, part of being the church is that we gather and that we gather often, as often as we can or as is reasonable or as is legal or I don't know what the case, you know, not legality doesn't play so much into it, but it does influence it is that we gather because in gathering we are built up and we are edified and we are strengthened and we are perfected and all of these other things. And so while, yes, a person can, a, a brother or a sister, we can pray anywhere. Yes, we can pray anywhere and we can worship anywhere at all. It is intended that we come together as a collective body, part of the greater whole, and worship together, fellowship together, learn together, sing together. And this is where some people's understanding gets a little bit dicey because it's like, okay, well, the church service should be like this. And it's like this rigid model, right? Which wasn't even necessarily established in back in the book of Acts, which is where we get, you know, a lot of our, what scant information there is about what a church service should be like. A lot of it comes from the book of Acts and the rest we extrapolate from, from the letters of the apostles. And a lot of that's in the negative sense, like Corinth, knock it off. You're doing this and it's wrong, and you're doing this and it's wrong, and you're doing this and it's wrong, and so this is the way that it needs to be. And so you put all of that together and it and it it presents you with a little bit of an image of what we ought to be doing. Well, what should a church service be like? Well, he doesn't say a lot about what the church is supposed to do when it comes together in organized worship. 
doesn't say much about it. It doesn't say, thou shalt have a song leader, and thou shalt sing two songs. Three songs occasionally, but four is right out. You know, <laughs> thou shalt not sing one song, but thou shalt sing two. You know, and, and then thou shalt receive an offering, and then thou someone shalt stand and pray. You know, it, it doesn't spell it out like that. There's a lot of liberty, which is to say autonomy, if that's even the right word. There's a lot of autonomy or liberty within the individual congregation to do things as it will or as leaders, as the leadership frames it or as the Holy Spirit leads it or what have you. So, well, it doesn't say a whole lot about what should be done. It says more about what not should be done. It does have a lot to say. The word does have a lot to say about how we do what we do when we gather so that we don't descend into confusion and we don't descend into disorderliness or even chaos. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Follow after charity. That means love. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him. Howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. So he's, he's starting to sort out the faulty understanding that the lot of the Corinthian Christians had in the church in Corinth. Okay, Verse 3. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. To exhort means to encourage or to... A lot of preaching is exhortation. It's exhorting people to be better, to do better, to trust more in God, so forth. Things like that. Okay. He that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, we already talked about that, to exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. I would that ye all spake with tongues, okay, so that, that takes away disbelief in tongues, or the faulty notion that tongues were done away with. There's nothing in Scripture that says that tongues have ended. And every believer ought to have that. They really ought to and can, if you want, and you're open to it, the Lord can make it happen in your life. That's, that's what comes with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, okay? Um, no, that's not what we're focusing on tonight. He said, I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. So Paul puts a greater emphasis, a greater importance on prophesying because when, when someone prophesies in the assembly of believers, they're standing up and they're sharing a message that is directly from God, and it's in a language that generally people understand. And if they do prophesy in tongues, because sometimes that happens, Paul said, don't do that unless there's someone who can interpret. So even if it's a prophecy that goes forth in tongues, the apostle was telling us, make sure somebody can interpret that so that everybody in the assembly gets edified by it. Let me tell you something. If you've ever been present when someone has genuinely stood up and prophesied from and by the Spirit of God, it is like a shot of adrenaline into, into the service itself. It is profoundly edifying and encouraging and strengthening. Verse 12. Even so ye, forasmuch as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. That's what the goal of these things is, is the edifying of the church, not the establishing of personal glory. Amen? Amen? Amen. Right, because it's not, all, it's not about lifting us up. It's not about lifting up one person in the church. 
Well, that's our prophet right there, you know. Because you ever want to see somebody get puffed up with spiritual pride? You see that sort of thing start going on, and, and it's it's nasty. It really is. And and then you get some sinner come into the congregation to hear the gospel and get right with God, and they see that circus act. They're not stupid. They know eh, something ain't right here. I'm not trying to focus on the gifts tonight. We're trying to focus on uh, on the overall assembly of the saints together in our services. Anyway, let's read on. Verse 23. If therefore the whole church become together into one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say ye are mad? So while he's talking about tongues, I'm taking this and I'm using this for another lesson, a secondary lesson that's that's buried in these verses here. The assembly must be decent and in order. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it occurs also in the same chapter that we're already reading. Let me just go ahead and read down to the conclusion of the chapter so we cover all of that. They're all gathered together. All believers were gathered together in one place and all speak with tongues. And there come in one, those that are unlearned, meaning they don't know what's going on, or unbelievers who, of course, have no part in any of it. Will they not say that ye are mad? But if an... But if all prophesy, there come in one, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. So why is that important? Why are we, why are we hovering on that about if an unbeliever come in, if an unbeliever come in, if an unbeliever come in? Because among these other requirements, that Paul talks about in the assembling of believers and how we do our church services or our fellowships or our Bible studies or whatever it is that we do when we gather together in Jesus' name. Where two or three gather together in my name. Okay, it's right there on that board. He says later on in this chapter to let everything be done decently and in order, not in chaos or disorganization. But it's also, it's open to the lost. This is important because this is the question that sparked this entire teaching, okay? Yes, a church could have a private assembly if they want to. I'm not saying that it's wrong to say, you know, you know, we really we just we don't want to deal with anybody that's outside the faith today. We just want to gather together and have a nice time one with another. And I'm not saying that that's wrong at all, but I am saying that that is not mandatory. And we'll read out of James, too. But this first part here in 1 Corinthians, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, said, if there come to your assembly an unbeliever. And then he describes what happens if there one comes unto their assembly who's an unbeliever, you know, and someone prophesies or what have you, and it strikes that unbeliever in the heart, and then his unbelief is changed to belief. So is the church... Is the assembly of believers supposed to be a private, closed, super secret, righteous only club? No. Now again, it's not to say that it can't have a that it can't have a private service because when an unbeliever does come into the assembly, it changes the dynamic of the assembly a little bit because the Holy Spirit is going to go to work trying to draw that sinner to Christ. Okay, and so it shifts things up a little bit. I'm not saying that that's bad or wrong. I'm saying that that's what the Holy Ghost does. 
He's going to be he's going to be very interested, and he's going to be striving to bring an unbeliever to a point of belief and salvation, because that's what the Holy Ghost does with sinners. He convicts them, he draws them, he leads them, and if they believe, they are born again into the body of Christ, and then guess what? They're not unbelievers anymore. Okay, but it's not a requirement because the assembly. Okay, it's open to the lost. The assembly of believers can be a closed assembly, but it is also a major evangelical endeavor. What did we say an evangelist is? Is someone who reaches the unreached, right? And so the gathering of believers together, if the doors are open for Joe Sixpack Center to come through the door and hear the word, praise God, let him come in and hear it because that may be his salvation. So, well, He's defiling, an, he's defiling a clean and a holy place. No, he's not. Because the church isn't the building. It's the people in it, isn't it? Really, it's the believers in the body of Christ. That's the church. That's you and me. But, but there it is. And so, to desire to lock the church doors to keep out the unbeliever, really is a missing of the mark. Let's go to James chapter 2, because I want to bring this other one out too, so you don't think that we're just building an entire doctrine off of one shoestring scripture, because we're not doing that, okay? James chapter 2. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Respect of persons is a phrase you find in the New Testament that refers to unjustly preferring someone over someone else. And James goes on to explain that. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, that just means the cheerful clothing, doesn't mean homosexual, the gay clothing, and to him, and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool, you know. This is an example of respected persons. You know, here comes some guy in from the Camilla shelter who's got a busted life in three different directions and he's hit rock bottom and he's desperate to hear something that'll change his life. And he's dressed in gross clothing and an old surplus jacket from the Vietnam era, you know, and he smells bad. And you say to him, you know, when another guy comes in in a $6,000 Japanese spun silk suit, and you say to that guy, you've got a nice place right up front. You can sit in the front row. This is, this is just you. You must be somebody important to have a suit like that. You know, you'd say, you'd say the guy that's dressed super nice, you put him in the, nice seat, the nicest seat in the house, and then the guy who comes in stenching, but broken in spirit and wanting God, you say to him, uh, we got a back pew for you, way back away from everybody else. And I understand sometimes you might want to do that if somebody is causing such a stink that it is disrupting the service. But, you know, we can't be respecters of persons. So when they come in, let them sit wherever they sit. Someone might get offended, but what if that person gets saved? And then their life is transformed, potentially, you know? And, and, and you, don't know where, you don't know where it'll go from there. And, and, and then back on this other thing about, you know, closing off the service to the unbeliever. How, who, many, who of you here has heard of a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon? Charles Spurgeon in recent church history, and recent meaning, say, the last two or three hundred years. Charles Spurgeon uh, lived in London, I think. He was, he was in England. 
And at the age of 15, he knew he was not right with God and he wanted to get right with God. So there was a church that he was going to go to, okay? Out the door, he went one Sunday morning uh, to go to church. There had been a snowstorm. It was winter. And the storm had been so bad that uh, the, the, the snowfall and the drifts or whatever had blocked his way. He could not get to the church that he was trying to go to. So he ended up detouring down some alley. And I know that this is a story I'm telling. It's not out of scripture, but it's just a piece of history to kind of drive home the importance of this thing, okay? So off down some alley he went, and he came across an assembly of what were called primitive Methodists, okay? Primitive Methodists. They were gathered in some place. It was a small group that was there. The preacher was not there because he had gotten snowed in probably, and so they were just sort of gathered. And finally, uh, some old man in the assembly, it might have been a cobbler or something like that, I forget how the narrative goes, even Spurgeon himself wasn't certain. Charles Spurgeon said this cobbler or whatever got up and preached a very simple message. And it was basically, look unto me. It was quoting Jesus. Look unto me. And he preached it like a house on fire, and it was very short, and it was extremely intense, and it absolutely thunderstruck this young Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And in that, and in that service, when the preacher finally stopped, he believed and came forward and accepted, and he was born again. So why is that significant? Who's this guy? You do any Google search on Charles Spurgeon and you will find he is referred to now as the Prince of Preachers. Charles Spurgeon became not only a Christian and not only a minister, but he became a pastor of the largest independent congregation in the city. I want to say it was in London. It was a massive, massive institution with thousands of people that were part of it. And it wasn't some worldly group of people now. You go to some mega church now, it's just a rock. Yeah, they got 2,000 people there, but what of it? There's no holiness of life at work. But he was so profoundly influential in the shaping, or in the ministry, I don't want to say the shaping, but in the ministry of the gospel to so many souls. Had that group of primitive Methodists kept their doors locked to the outsiders, would we have even had a Charles Spurgeon? Now, maybe so. Maybe some evangelical effort, uh, some evangelical effort outside of the church as a building or an institution might have reached him, but maybe not. Maybe not. So the assembly must be decent and in order. So you don't find folks running across the tops of pews and, you know, and doing crazy things like that because there are groups that do that, and they call that the Holy Ghost. You, know? you don't have people running into a wall because some people have done that too, you know. And you don't have a preacher in the front preaching one thing and another preacher in the back preaching an entirely different message. It should be spirit-led, not flesh-led or feelings-led. Does that make sense? Now, there are feelings, yes, but feelings are not what lead us. We're supposed to be led by the Spirit of God. And we're finding that, we're finding a lot more of this in modern churches today, more of this feelings-led stuff. Feelings, well, I just feel like the Lord led me to leave my wife and marry this other woman. What? <laughs> Whatever you felt, that wasn't the Lord. You know, it really wasn't. The Lord told me that I had a right to be happy. He never said that. He never said that in the Word. You know, be holy, and there is happiness that comes with that. Amen? Really, there is. So, and it's open to the saved, of course. And it should be open to all of the saved. 
It shouldn't be a case of, oh, well, well, we're of this set, but you're a Baptist. You can't come and be a part of our assembly. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. Come on in, man. Now, if you're going to be a part of this assembly, we're going to preach to you the word. And, you know, and make, you may end up coming out of that Baptist mindset and into uh, something that's more scriptural. Not saying that Baptists aren't always, aren't always unscriptural. A lot of Baptists are good people. A lot of Pentecostals are good people. But there's some differences in some of the things that they believe in practice. And so you come here, you know the, t- the tossed salad of folks we've got as far as backgrounds. So what do we do? Are we a multi-denominational church? Nope. If you come here, I don't care what you came out of. You could have come from the Amish. You could have come from the Catholics. You could have come from some cult. Wherever you come from, you come here. We're going to do our dead level best to bring us all under under the common understanding of the Word of God. Amen? Yeah. Is that a worthy mission? Yes. Amen, amen. So it's open to the saved, and it's open to the lost, because you don't know who's going to get saved in the church. They might be the next Billy Sunday. They might be the next Billy Graham. Not that I'm trying to put him up on a pedestal, but he preached salvation to millions before he died. He was like Fidel Castro. We didn't know when he was going to die. He was old when he finally departed this life. You know. So what should we be doing as an assembly of believers? What are we doing when we come together? Are we just doing it because it's our routine, it's our habit, or it's expected of us? And I know I twist arms a lot of times. I'm always trying to get us to come more often. You know, be in every service if you can, because, you know, not just for the sake of bulking up the numbers, but because it's edifying to all of us. We gather to worship, to learn, to praise, to grow, to strengthen one another and be strengthened by one another and by the the Spirit of God Almighty. Whatever we do needs to be scriptural. It needs to be sincere and oriented towards edifying everyone present. Whatever we do, let it be to God's glory and to one another's edification. And if an unbeliever come into our midst, we show him Christ, we show him love, we share with him the word and the hope and the expectation that he will believe, he will confess, he will accept Christ, will be born again. And then guess what? That adds another person to the family of God. But by the grace of God, we would all still be the same sinners we used to be. Amen. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.